the leader of the unofficial opposition. Ryan Lilly is on your side. Beyond the News on News Talk 580 CFRA. I don't think that you're racist, Canada. I don't think that this country is built on white supremacy. And yet those are the viewpoints being put forward by some people who are considered pundits at the highest level in this country right now. These are the implications of the comments being made by our politicians. That you are a bunch of racists and that the only reason that A man was acquitted in a murder trial this week is racism. Before I even get into the specifics, can I just point out that in the media we're told that we shouldn't be talking about the race of a suspect. We shouldn't be talking about the race of a perpetrator. We shouldn't be talking about the race of a victim. We shouldn't be talking about the race of anybody unless it is actually pertinent to the case. And yet, what do we keep hearing? White farmer acquitted in murder case of indigenous man. Race is all this is about now. It's not about the facts. Which apparently a lot of people did not pay attention to. In fact, I had someone tell me, well, I I didn't really pay attention to the trial, but I think it's wrong. Well, if you didn't pay attention to the trial and you don't know what was said, then you can't turn around and say that it's wrong. But in a trial that has been taking place for the last several weeks in Saskatchewan, in a place called the Battlefords, North Battleford, bigger Saskatchewan, the trial was taking place in, uh, in the Battlefords, northwestern Saskatchewan, this trial was not getting a ton of attention nationally. And then the verdict came back, not guilty. Not guilty for Gerald Stanley in the shooting death of 22-year-old Colton Bushy. Now, nobody disputes that Gerald Stanley shot and killed Colton Bushy. Colton Bushy was a 22-year-old man from a Cree reserve called Red Pheasant nearby the town of Bigger. And he and his friends had been out drinking all day in August of 2016. They'd been out drinking all day, and then they went driving in an SUV. They tried to, they were having problems with their vehicle, so they pulled into one farmyard. They tried to steal a vehicle by taking a rifle, a loaded rifle that they had in their vehicle, and trying to smash in and, and steal this SUV. That didn't work. So then they moved on to the Stanley Farm. And that's where things went badly. According to testimony at trial, the five young people in the vehicle, not all of them, but various ones, tried to steal an all-terrain vehicle. They tried to steal a quad. They tried to steal another vehicle. They rammed into another vehicle all on the farmyard. And it's in the middle of this that Gerald Stanley, reacting to mayhem on his property... 
went to his uh, barn, went to a building on his property. It wasn't the house. It was shed, barn, what have you. Got a handgun out. Fired warning shots. According to what he said and what the jury believed, he thought the gun was empty and he was reaching into the vehicle to turn it off and take the keys away from Colton Bushy, a man who had been sleeping through much of what had gone on before, according to testimony from Crown and defense witnesses. And had woken up and tried to drive away. Gerald Stanley's reaching in. He still has the gun in his hand. It's pointing at Colton Bushy, and he said it just went off. He thought it was empty, he claims. They had expert witnesses for the Crown and the defense that testified as to what is called hang fire theory. That, yes, a bullet can hang in the chamber for a while before it's shot. The jury believed that what happened was an accident, and the Crown had sought to charge Gerald Stanley with second-degree murder. They did not try and charge him with manslaughter, and I contend that had he been charged with manslaughter, Gerald Stanley would be in jail today. But this case, because of the races of the people involved, has been political from the start. It has been politicized by activists, and I'm going to say on all sides, it has been politicized, but on the uh, on the actual level people have made all kinds of racist comments on all sides i'm not disputing that but in terms of the people in power it's been politicized from the point of view of colton bushy of first nations and that's why i think that the charge was not manslaughter but was instead Second-degree murder, which has a higher test. And the Crown did not meet that test. Now, Michael Plaxton, who is a, uh, a law professor and a writer in Saskatchewan, wrote about what he thought went through the jury's minds as they deliberated this. And what he thinks happens is, happened is that partly... The Crown made such a case for going murder or bust that this was absolutely a murder. But they didn't prove their case that when the jury said we can't convict him on murder, they didn't even go to manslaughter and they acquitted Gerald Stanley. We all know what's happened since then. People have reacted with fury and with outrage. Again, from all sides, but I want to point to someone named Ian Capstick. Ian's a man that I've known for more than a decade now. Someone that I've had respect for at various times, but with a tweet like this, I'm still mind blown that this man is a regular paid contributor to CBC. His tweet, moments after this jury verdict, seven women five men, and I'll get to the composition of the jury in a moment, said, this is white supremacy in action. This is the continued subjugation of First Nations. This is white Canada. Hashtag justice for Colton. That man is saying the only reason this happened is because of racism. A claim that I reject. Jody Wilson-Raybould 
and the prime minister both tweeted out about this. Justin Trudeau tweeting from the United States where he was on tour saying, just spoke with at Puglas, that's the Twitter handle for our justice minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould. I can't imagine the grief and sorrow the Bushy family is feeling tonight sending love to them from the U.S. Our justice minister, the woman that appoints judges to sit on the bench, the top lawyer in the country said, thank you, PM Justin Trudeau. My thoughts are with the family of Colton Bushy tonight. All right, that part's fine. But then she said, I truly feel your pain and I hear all of your voices. As a country, we can and must do better. I am committed to working every day to ensure justice for all Canadians. That last part, that last part, in my view, prevents a credible appeal from happening. The Crown can come forward and say, we want to appeal this verdict, and any defense lawyer worth their salt will say there is already a bias inherent in the system because the top lawyer, the person that appoints all the judges, has already said we can and must do better. That implies that this was the wrong decision. The wrong decision. Why? We keep being told that this was an all-white jury. We keep being told that anyone that looked like they were First Nations, Indigenous, that there was a preemptory challenge, that the defense would just say challenge. Now, when that happens, you don't have to give a reason. You just challenge a jurist and they are off. Well, read the story from when jury selection happened in the Globe and Mail. Do you know who else was challenged? But not by the defense, but by the Crown. You know who else was blocked based on their race? Based on their age, based on their demographics, middle-aged white men blocked from the jury by the Crown. They didn't want anyone that looked like Gerald Stanley sitting in judgment of him. So we've got middle-aged white men blocked by the Crown. We've got indigenous Canadians blocked by the defense. Seven women, five men listen to the testimony they listen to the fact that the crown's star witnesses admitted that they lied admitted that they some had had as many as 30 shots of alcohol that day that they didn't always remember what was going on that they lied to police they lied to prosecutors and they changed their statements on the stand this was a case that it was not decided by racism, but was decided because the Crown did not prove its case in our system. And this better not change. Despite all the promises of Justin Trudeau and Jody Wilson-Raybould that we need to do better and we need to change the system. In our system, for you to be convicted, the Crown must prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. It is not up to you to prove your innocence They need to prove that you are guilty. And when the Crown overreaches in the charges that it files, again, they could have gone for manslaughter. They went for second-degree murder. Why? I think politics. But then they failed to meet that standard. And their star witnesses admitted to lying, admitted to being drunk, admitted to going on the property in order to steal It blows apart the entire case. Gerald Stanley did not, and his lawyer, did not argue self-defense in this case. They just said it was an accident. 
they didn't mean for it to happen, but that he was acting in a manic situation. And put yourself in that situation. You're out fixing the fence on your property with your son. People pull into the property. Your wife's mowing the lawn. All of a sudden, people are trying to steal stuff. Trucks, uh, SUVs are being smashed into one another. At one point, Gerald Stanley said he thought his wife was under one of the SUVs. All of this happening so quickly. Oh, and did I mention the gun? That the five young people had in the truck with them? It was loaded. Gerald Stanley didn't necessarily know that, but there was a gun there. This is not a cut-and-dry case. There is no doubt that Gerald Stanley killed Colton Bushy. Did he kill him because he was native? No. Was this trial decided based on race? No. There are injustices that happen to First Nations people across this country every day. But this is not your test case for saying... We need to fix the system. This is a test case for saying, take responsibility for your actions having consequences. Colton Bushy may not have deserved to die. I don't believe that he did for a second. But his actions and the actions of his friends contributed to what happened that day. And to paint him as a martyr and put this all down to race does a disservice not only to the justice system, but to to the entire country. And for our prime minister and our justice minister to sit there and make this about race is truly and utterly disgusting. It tells you what they think of average Canadians. That you're just a bunch of bigots. You can't be trusted in a system that has yes, while it has its problems, is far better than any other justice system in the world. Do we want to go to a a French-style justice system? Do we want to go to a Germanic one, something from South America? Maybe we'll go to a Chinese justice system. They have an incredible conviction rate. You can get convicted all the time in China. Is that what we want to go to? I hope not. We're going to continue talking about this tonight. Just after 7.30, we're going to have on criminal defense lawyer Ed Berlew to talk not only about jury selection, but about rights of self-defense, because there's a lot of misconceptions and bad information out there. And I want to fix that and talk about that. May not have been pertinent to this case exactly, but people are lying to you about what the reality is to push their own political agenda. We'll cut through that crap Later on, just after 8.05, Jihadi Jack wants to come back to Canada, even though he's never actually lived here. He's visited here as a tourist, visiting relatives in the Ottawa area, it turns out. But he's, he's Canadian in the same way that I'm British. I could travel on a British passport if I wanted, but if I was caught in another country, I wouldn't be trying to go to Britain. Jihadi Jack wants to come to Canada because he knows that Canada is lighter on terrorists. We'll talk about that just after 8.05 with Phil Gursky. Uh, we got a whole lot more. Stick around for the rest of the show. If you're watching on Facebook Live, join us for the rest of the program, CFRA.com, or you can listen on the iHeartRadio app, always free, Apple or Android. Download it today.
insurgent? Believe it. The resistance is here. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. May I have your attention, please? Brian Lilly's Five Things You Need to Know. Story number one that you need to know, it is the Colton Bushy trial, and we'll get back to that in just a moment with criminal defense lawyer Ed Berlew. But uh, Justin Trudeau was in the United States speaking in Los Angeles on the weekend and reacting to the verdict in ways that no prime minister should. Indigenous people across this country are uh, angry, they're heartbroken, uh, and I know Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians alike Uh, know that we have to do better. We have to do better. That implies the prime minister believes the verdict is wrong. So a prime minister commenting on a jury verdict that may be appealed. That helps kill off the appeal. Story number two that you need to know about. We'll play the clips later on. The Conservatives still asking about this in the House of Commons today. We we like to say people kind, not necessarily mankind. Not because they wanted to know more about Justin Trudeau's mansplaining, but they wanted to know more about why his principal secretary, Gerald Butts, was calling critics of the PM Nazis. And would he disassociate himself? You won't believe the answer on this. I'll bring you that audio later on in the program. Story number three, cops in this city have been saying for some time now that they are being handcuffed. Now, new research from Greg Brown former Ottawa homicide and drug detective who's now a doctoral researcher at Carleton University, says, yep, cops aren't doing what they should be doing because they worry about the public fallout for their actions. The more the police interpret that they're being unfairly criticized or that interpretation has an anti-police bias, that's leading them to be very concerned for you know their livelihood, for being named publicly as a racist police officer or a brutal police officer, being dragged in front of a disciplinary tribunal. And story number four is, of course, related. Egal Daud, a 30-year-old man known to police, that's how they describe him, he is the city's fifth homicide, 16th shooting of the year. No suspects, no charges at this point. He was found in the Baseline and Maryville Road area on the weekend. And story number five, if you don't think there's enough competition for you being transported around. Well, Lyft is coming to Ottawa. They haven't given an end date yet, but Aaron Zivkin doing the media rounds today, including right here on Newstalk 580 CFRA, to describe how this competitor to Uber and the taxi industry is going to shake things up. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Ed Berlew, criminal defense lawyers next. We got Lauren Gunter on this fight between... Alberta and BC over pipelines and wine. We got Matt Scoff from the Ottawa Police Association on this latest study. So much more. Stick around. It's been too long, folks. I've missed you. Hope you missed me. If you miss Brian Lilly, don't worry. Everyone else will catch up next week. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. We have little to no faith in the justice system, and we're here to talk about that and figure out ways to address that. So that this is the beginning, and I hope 
that something comes of it. We're here to work on this. We're here to ask people to work with us. That's the voice of Jade Tutusis. She is a sister of Colton Bushy. She and other family members in Ottawa today having meetings with several cabinet ministers. This all happened very quickly. Normally it takes a long time to get meetings with cabinet ministers, no matter how heartbreaking your case is, no matter what's going on. But they came to Ottawa, they had the meetings today, and there were promises for changing the justice system. That's right. There were promises already for saying things have to change. We understand that there are systemic issues in our criminal justice system that we must address. We are committed to broad-based reform to address these issues. As a country, we must and we can do better. Our government is committed to working hard every day to ensure justice for all Canadians. Uh, The implication in many of these comments is that justice was not served, that it was a miscarriage of justice with this verdict that was announced on Friday evening. Ed Berlew is a criminal defense lawyer. He has uh, participated in many jury trials himself. He's also an expert in matters related to firearms and self-defense law. And that's primarily where I wanted to take my conversation with Ed tonight. But, Ed, before we get to that, I want to ask you a little bit about jury selection because you've been through it and I haven't. In fact, despite covering more trials than I can remember, I can't recall covering a jury trial. Most are most trials in Canada are by judge alone, aren't they? Yes, that's right. The, the vast majority are judge alone. Uh, when we have a, a criminal defense jury trial in superior court, it is with 12 jurors. How there's been an awful lot of discussion about the fact that anyone that looked indigenous was blocked. But as I pointed out, reading from a piece in the Globe and Mail that was written at the time of jury selection, while the defense wanted to block First Nations people, the crown wanted to block middle aged white men. And they both they both were successful. So is this just part of how our system works or is there racism inherent in the system? Is there a problem that the jury didn't have someone uh, that was indigenous on it? Let me go back to the, the beginning of how a jury pool is created. Each province has what's called a Juries Act, and that's pretty uniform for every province. What happens is the attorney general picks people from the local community, that geographic community, based on location. In other words, they have to be evenly spread among the geography. They are expressly forbidden to select according to race, religion, socioeconomic factors. So therefore, the inquiries and the selection letters go out to everybody evenly geographically. They then report back to the to serve. They come in to serve on a jury, and when they're in the jury pool, their names are drawn somewhat like bingo numbers are drawn, very randomly. They then come in upon being drawn to the court, and in the case of a murder situation, which we had here, murder charge, the Crown has 20 preemptory challenges. In other words, they don't like the color of your hair, they don't like how you walk, you're out. 
The same thing for the defense. They get 20 preemptory. They don't have to ask a question. They just look at them and say no. And that is what occurred. They had these preemptory. There are challenges for cause that are allowed. That's under 638 of the criminal code. And there's five specific, well, six, six specific uh, what, What's criteria. a challenge for cause then? Say again? What, what is a challenge for cause? A challenge for cause is if their name doesn't appear on the panel, uh, but there's a, a misdescription. If the juror is indifferent between the queen and the accused, in other words, doesn't care about it. If the jurors uh, convicted for an offense where he was sentenced to death or a term of imprisonment over 12 months in the past, if the juror is not a Canadian, and if they cannot, even with technical, personal, or interpretive or other support, um, and if they're unable to perform their duties, or if they don't speak uh, English or French, which are two uh, official languages. Then they can be challenged for cause. That's very limited. That's laid out in black letter statute created by the Parliament of Canada many decades ago. So it's not unusual, and I, I heard from a, another defense lawyer, Michael Spratt, was on with uh, with Rob Snow on News and Views on this station earlier today, and, and Michael Spratt was saying if he has a, a black client or a, a native client, often it's the crown trying to keep people from those jury uh, from those groups off the jury. So this goes both ways, doesn't it? It definitely goes both ways. Um, both both sides look at things and they have and, and they put prejudices uh, predetermination based on 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 race or name uh, to to the preemptory uh, elimination of, po- of potential jurors. That is done. There's no doubt about it. Speaking with Ed Burlew, criminal defense lawyer, uh, about the Gerald Stanley murder trial. Now, uh, Gerald Stanley and his lawyer did not argue self-defense. But throughout this trial, there have been a number of pieces coming forward and a lot of commentary online from pundits and amateur pundits and just folks deciding to vent their spleen on Twitter saying, uh, this is not the United States. You can't use force to defend yourself. And, and and I've been told this and argued with people about defending property. Can I defend my life, the life of my family members, or my property from someone coming onto my home, my land, and trying to take or take what's mine or harm those that are mine? Well, yes. Uh, very specifically, uh, the criminal code provides in Section 35 of the criminal code that a person who has a right of property in something, be it land, be it a car, uh, uh, in your watch uh, that you wear, or uh, you, you have a right to defend someone taking that from you. And that, that in other words... If somebody grabs my watch, I can grab them back and force them to stop taking my watch. And although that might otherwise be viewed as an assault, because I'm stopping them from taking my watch using reasonable physical uh, power, that's not an offense. Okay, but some people would say killing somebody is never reasonable. That you should... 
and I'll quote, you should go into your home and call 911. Well, <laughs> that's not the law in Canada. That's actually never really been the law of Canada. Okay, so is lethal force also subject to a, a reasonableness test? Oh, yes. Uh, you can't just... Uh, decide that you're going to, uh, you know, terminate somebody's you, life. You're trying to take my watch and I shoot you. Oh, no. But you have no weapon. I'm going to jail. Oh, yeah. You're going to do, do the 25 years. No doubt about it. Okay. So at what point does it, does the reasonable test say, all right, there is no offense because it's not that you're not guilty. It, uh, my understanding of the law is, if you meet that test, there is considered not to have been an offense at all. Well, that's correct. Uh, you know, what happens here is when you're defending property, it depends on how this, this person who's trying to take your property or enter your property, and the house is looked at in a, uh, a more protective way. In other words, if somebody's trying to get into your house and they're forcing their way in and they're using some kind of a tool or weapon to force their way in, or if they grab you to force you to open the door, uh, use your key, or threaten some person you know, say, look, I'm going to hurt your daughter unless we let you into the house. Now, you're into a different scenario, and the, the, the courts preserve the house more than other things that are loose on your property or that are easily taken from you. And, and that's very real. See, what also happens is during the defense of property, it can turn into a defense of your life. You may say, okay, leave my watch alone, and you yank your hand back and push them away. And then they come with a knife or a screwdriver, which will penetrate flesh. It'll get into a major organ and kill you. Now you're threatened. Your life is threatened. Now you're defending your life. Now it's a different story. You, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you defended Ian Thompson, didn't you? In That's his correct. Case? Okay, so you, you were Ian Thompson's defense lawyer. Ian Thompson, for people that don't know, is a man from down around Welland, St. Catharines area in Ontario in that Niagara Peninsula, who his home was being firebombed, and he... Um, he had four people outside throwing Molotov cocktails at his home, screaming that they were going to burn him alive inside. He went outside and fired warning shots. He didn't shoot at them. He fired warning shots. He, was, he still faced stiffer charges and more potential jail time than the people that he was uh, scaring off from trying to kill him. So while the, the law may say that we can defend ourselves— Often prosecutors don't see it that way. Police don't see it that way. Well, that's correct. What happens uh, very often, um, and, and because I, I do so many of this type of case, I see whereby the fallacy of who is the first responder is, is perpetrated. And I'm going to say that's by the police and by the, by the prosecution. It takes a bit to reconvince them, and that's what advocacy is about. So what happens is people say, oh, well, the police and the firemen are your first responders. So are the EMS. And, yes, they are. They're absolutely critical to keeping peace in order and protecting us as citizens. 
But the true first responder is you, and it will always be you. Your first response does not have to be to retreat and make a telephone call and then sit there for minimum 15 minutes, sometimes an hour, for the police to show up. That's not reasonable. Yeah, well, if you're facing somebody to uh, who's threatening to kill you and your police are 40 minutes, an hour away, that's not going to help you. No, it's not. The, there's actually a wheel of force that the police are taught about, and it can be found by looking on the Internet. And basically what it says uh, is that if a person is within 20 feet of you and is threatening you with a weapon, be it a knife or a gun or a hammer, uh, those are just some examples, that the police are totally within their right to protect their own person to draw, shoot at the center of mass and eliminate that threat. It's uh, it's going to be interesting days for the uh, the courts um, and, and the judicial system going forward. Ed, before I let you go, do you think uh, I'm hearing different opinions on this? Not surprised. You put three lawyers in a room, you'll get five opinions. But do you think that the comments, the tweets, the public statements by the prime minister and the the justice minister put in danger? an appeal by the Crown in this Stanley uh, acquittal. So the jury acquitted them. There's been talk that an appeal could happen, but do these could a defense lawyer use these statements to say, no, we, we can't go to an appeal. There's bias against my client. Uh, yes, I think that that is very obvious. I mean, it is so unusual to have such a quick reaction uh, by these high officials, especially our prime minister, to make these statements which are without precedent, without like no prime minister has said this before. Uh, in and it, you can't deny it's about this case. It it, it creates a, a freeze on the whole of the judiciary who may otherwise wish to participate in an appeal. All right, Ed. Thanks for the time tonight. Thank you. Ed Berlew, criminal defense lawyer, joining us from Toronto. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Uh, when we come back, a lot of plaudits going out to Chris Stockwell, former Speaker of the Ontario Legislature. He passed from cancer over the weekend. We'll talk about that. Chris was an interesting cat. But also, Ottawa lost, and I'm sure you've got many of these in your community. We lost someone closer. I'll tell you about Kay Johnson when we come back. Let's get a little mud on the tire. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Just after 8 o'clock, we will speak with Phil Gursky. Uh, he's a former CSIS agent, worked the jihadi desk for a long time. Now he's the president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk uh, Assessment. He is a security consultant and expert. We'll talk to him about Jihadi Jack that wants... I keep calling, wanting to call him Jihadi Jack, like he's French. Jihadi Jack, dual British-Canadian citizen, but he never lived here, but he wants to come here when he gets out of... 
Turk Kurdish detention. We'll talk about that just after eight o'clock. Last night, Vic Fideli, progressive conservative interim leader, tweeted out, very saddened to hear about the passing of former MPP cabinet minister, speaker of the House and longtime Tory family member, Chris Stockwell. Rest in peace. Stockwell was the MPP for Etobicoke from 1990 to 2003. He was part of the Mike Harris government. He was a star in opposition during the Bob Ray days. And he was speaker of the Ontario legislature. Kathleen Wynne tweeting about him. I knew Chris Stockwell as a fiery, passionate person who brought life to the Ontario legislature. I send my personal condolences to his family and friends. And, and Lisa McLeod, my heart breaks for Chris Stockwell's family. He was a superb public speaker, or public servant speaker of the Assembly and a loyal progressive conservative, particularly kind to me as a friend and supporter. I will always remember him and forever miss him. I never covered Chris Stockwell as a reporter because I haven't really spent a lot of time at the Queen's Park Legislature. But he was an interesting cat on Twitter. He he was fiercely independent. And you would think that someone that spent so long as an elected conservative would normally be in agreeing with somebody like me. But just as often as Chris Stockwell would be retweeting me and having my back, he would also be pushing me. We interacted a fair bit on Twitter and he'd be pushing, he'd be poking, he'd be pushing buttons he was an independent thinker, and I only got to know him through Twitter, but he uh, he definitely made an impression, so he'll be missed. And lots of plaudits going out to him across the province. But I just want to say that the south end of Ottawa, Greeley area in particular, lost a champion this weekend. And whatever part of the city that you live in, you've got someone like this. Someone who is a tireless volunteer and servant in their community. And I'm talking about Kay Johnston. Kay Johnston is somebody that first met when my family started attending Our Lady of the Visitation Church in Greeley. And there was this woman. She passed away Sunday night at the uh, age of of 86. And... She'd been a volunteer at the church in various groups in the the South End for such a long time. She was welcoming. She was a joy to be around. I'm going to miss seeing her, bumping into her at Tim Hortons. I'm going to miss seeing her at church suppers and events like that. But her family are really going to miss her. Husband uh, Donald passed on many years ago. But her children, Jean, David, Laura, and Anne, her many grandchildren, are going to miss her. Her funeral mass tomorrow, 11 a.m. at Our Lady of the Visitation. Kay, you will be missed. Rest in peace. You can listen to Be Lil Now or catch up with everyone else next week. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We're Canadian and we're here to help. We're Canadian and we're here to help. One of the famous sayings of our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, but just how far should that 
extend? Should it extend to someone who is like kind of Canadian? I'll tell you how stupid people are online. I tweeted about this guy whose nickname, his name's Jack Letts. And in the British media, they refer to him as Jihadi Jack. There's Jihadi John, who we know lots of nasty stuff about. And then there's Jihadi Jack, who we don't know as much about. But Jihadi Jack is accused of being a member of ISIS. He's now in Kurdish-controlled territory. And I tweeted about this guy because he wants to come back to Canada because he holds a Canadian passport. He's never lived here, as far as I know. Looks like he visited on vacation. And I said, this guy that looks that looks like he never lived in Canada wants to come back because we're nicer to terrorists. People jumped down my throat saying, your racism is showing. What do you mean doesn't look like he ever lived in Canada? What does someone that lives in Canada look like? Well, no, I mean, doesn't look like he ever actually lived here. He was born and educated in England. He moved from England to Syria. He now claims for humanitarian work, but the British government says, no, he was involved in terrorism. What should we do about this case? Well, the prime minister has said a Canadian's a Canadian is a Canadian. In his latest blog post, Phil Gursky from Borealis Threat and Risk Assessment says that doesn't necessarily mean we got to bring him back. Phil joins me on the line now. Phil, I wish you were prime minister on this one because I trust you a lot more than Mr. Trudeau, who seems to you know think of uh, ISIS returning ISIS fighters as a bold voice in our communities. Well, hey, thanks for the uh, the support there, Brian. Uh, maybe I got one vote. I should run for office maybe in 2019. <laughs> I'll have to think about that really carefully. But, no, it, it, you know, it, it does raise a really good question about, and, and I, you know, I, I like your opening comments on this, on the fact that you may have a Canadian passport, but I agree with you. There, there, there's nothing to suggest he actually lived here in the country. My understanding is that his dad's Canadian and his mm-hmm. mom is, is, is a Brit. Well, and, and but, so in my case, I've never lived in Britain. But my parents are from there. I'm eligible for a British passport. Right. But you're not actually British. You're, no, you're, you're I've, through, through and through Canadian. I've been on nice long visits there. Lovely place to go. But, you know, if I got in trouble, I'd be calling the Canadian consulate, not the Brits, to get me out. Well, exactly. And I think in this case, not only is there a tenuous link between Mr. Letts and Canada, but I think the more important issue is, is that he's, he's been accused and, and quite openly by the United you know, the UK government of having traveled to Syria to join Islamic State, been captured. I believe he was trying to flee Raqqa when he was captured by the Kurds. He's now spending time uh, at the uh, I don't know at the um, he's a guest of the Kurdish government. I guess you would call that. <laughs> I guess and, so. And and he, and he doesn't like it apparently. But I think what there's two things that bother me. First and foremost is that there seems to be some disagreement as to why he went to Syria. Um, Based on what I, know, what I know of the case from the UK media and some photographs have been posted, it seems pretty clear to me he wasn't going there. He, he didn't confuse Raqqa with Club Med. Let's just put it that way, okay? Raqqa, when, explain how important Raqqa was to ISIS. Well, basically, it's kind of, it, it's kind of you know, it, it, it's the center, right? It, it's the place that they wanted to, to use to basically establish the capital of the caliphate and, and spread their evil brand of, of faith, uh, you know, over the region and, and then beyond that. So it's really, really important to them. So going to Raqqa in 2014, 2015, whatever it is he, he got over there, there's no way that anyone could have misconstrued that as, as anything but going to support Islamic State. It's as you as you also mentioned in your post that there are photos of him doing w- what essentially amounts to an Islamist salute. 
you know, the one figure salute, but, you know, we're number one kind of thing. What it refers to is a concept called Tawheed, which is a very, very standard concept within Islam. It's about the oneness of God, but the jihadists have usurped that into being, this is kind of like, I'm a jihadist, and I'm going to prove it by putting my one finger up in the air. And, and, and Mr. Les is not the only person who's done this. There are thousands of photographs on various sites of jihadis from Islamic State and other groups showing this science. So to me, it's a pretty good indication that he, in fact, had gone with the intent of joining Islamic State. His parents maintained that that he had, you know, he's sworn up and down to them. He wasn't involved, that he went just to help fellow Muslims as humanitarian. And I listened to a very long interview that um, John Letts did with Roy Green. And while you've got some great evidence, you listen to his father and his it comes across his sincere belief that his son is not involved in anything untoward at all. Well, God love his father. He's supporting his son to the nth degree, as a parent should. But it seems to me that there is a is a fairly robust amount, I wouldn't know if I call it evidence, but I want to talk about court cases here, but there certainly is enough information to suggest that he went there. You know, the son's obviously pleaded with his father, saying, hey, Dad, this is what I did, and, and the dad is giving him the benefit of the doubt kind of thing. But beyond a parent's love for the son, what other proof do they have that, that, he, that he didn't go there to join ISIS? Because he said so? Well, I don't know about you, Brian, but I've come across a few people in life that haven't been, uh, shall we say, forthcoming with the truth on certain matters. And Mr. Letts is obviously, I think, trying to minimize the reasons why he went there in the first place. Look, he may have done nothing. He may not have beheaded anybody or killed anybody or raped any of these. I have no idea what he did there. And he may not be the most heinous terrorist on the planet. But the fact is, he did, you know, it's highly, highly likely he did go to Syria to join a, a terrorist group. And that's an offense. Not just here in Canada or the UK. That's a friend. It's just anywhere, as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned. The um, you mentioned that uh, you've been a national uh, security expert on court cases, um, national security certificate cases. Do they always claim that they're innocent? Well, most of the time, yeah. The one thing we used to, we, and I may have said this on your show before, the one thing that used to just kill us is that you'd interview these guys, and, and invariably they would say one of two things. I just drove the bus, or I just served tea. So, you know, I went to Afghanistan in 2000, you know, met the Taliban, I just drove the bus from the camp to the training grounds, or I just served tea to the leadership, and we couldn't get a straight answer out of anybody. But, you know, and, and fair enough, who's going to tell us he's this guy, oh, yeah, I, I beheaded people while, while I was in eastern Afghanistan. So you kind of ex- expect that, but... It's, it's funny, because eh? a lot of these guys do go online and they brag about their exploits, especially the ones that have, that have left Canada, because they want to sort of throw it in our faces. Hey, Mr. Cephas, Mr. RCMP, you didn't catch me. Here I am in Syria. Here I am in Iraq. You know, nah, 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 nah. You, you know, you guys are bozos for not stopping me. They're the, they're the ones that seem to deny everything, and it, it's, it's, there's kind of no middle ground between that. So what, what, what you know, Jack Letts did in Syria, I really have no idea. But, I mean, to me... The, the most fundamental truth here is that he did leave the United Kingdom to join a terrorist group, and that's what we have to deal with. The British authorities obviously believe that he did join a terrorist group because when his parents tried to send him money, he contacted them and said, I can get out. Can you please send me a thousand pounds to get home? When they sent the money, they were charged with essentially financing a terrorist organization. Exactly, which suggests to me that, you know, MI5 or whatever British intelligence was following the case at the time, probably MI5, which is kind of the, their equivalent of the thesis over there, had some pretty darn good intelligence 
to suggest they knew exactly what he was up to. Otherwise, otherwise they wouldn't have charge, laid charges against the parents. So, so based on that, uh, I, I think we should conclude that, that at least as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, that Mr. Letts, in fact, is a terrorist who joined a terrorist organization. That seems to be pretty clear to me. All right. Do you think that, given our, our recent history, our, you know, people are right to be worried that this guy will come back, or if he doesn't come back quick enough, that not only will he get into Canada— and he's been up front. He and his family have been up front. They want him in Canada because they think Britain is uh, harsher on folks like Mr. Letts. Do you think people are right to be worried that we're going to end up with another $10.5 million check being handed out? I think it's possible. There certainly has been a, a, an unfortunate litany, as you and I are well aware, in the past, what, 18 to 24 months of this happening. Look, you know, Brian, if he were to come back, I'm not necessarily worried he's going to be bin Laden 2.0. I'm not necessarily worried he's going to carry out acts of terrorism or radicalize others to carry out acts of terrorism. He may, he may not. I simply don't know. But the, what, it, what, what really bothers me is that it's almost like people can go make this decision to join a group like Islamic State, and then, you know, scot-free, nothing happens to them. Like, it, it, like this is a serious offense, and especially this particular terrorist group is one of the most brutal in recent history. So is there not a price to be paid? And secondly, I mean, I'm guessing that, you know, the Syrians probably want a piece of them as well, you know, literally and figuratively for what he did in Syria. And, you know, because he joined a terrorist group that was trying to overthrow their regime as well. So, I mean, whose law prevails here? Is it Canadian law? Is it UK law? Is it Syrian law? I don't know. There are right now gen- being held in Syria. There are generally at any given moment between four and 5,000 Canadians in foreign jails. We don't move heaven and earth to get them all out. Well, and, and, and nor should we in, in, in the most serious cases. So you know, I often said, tell people that when I go to Singapore and you get off the airplane in Singapore and you get in the airport, there's a sign that's got to be 300 feet wide and 300 feet long saying, uh, by the way, uh, dealing in drugs is death in Singapore. In case you had any ideas, we kill you in this country's capital punishment. Do we rescue pedophiles from Thai prisons, Canadian pedophiles who go to, you know, have sex with little boys in southern Thailand? I don't think we do that. So why will we bend over backwards? And I, and I don't wish Mr. Letts, I don't wish him to be tortured or ill-treated by the Syrians, but, hey, he made his bet. He went there deliberately to join a terrorist group. There's got to be some price to pay for that. And now, as far as I can tell, this is his first attempt to come to Canada, other than vacations to visit his father's family as a child. That's my understanding as well. So we'd have to ask the question, is the possession of a Canadian passport, is that in and of itself enough for, as you just said, the Canadian government to move heaven and earth to get him back here. I, I don't think the answer to that question is yes. I don't think the, I don't think most Canadians would think the answer to that question is yes either. So these are these are issues we really have to think about. Um, and secondly, what kind of message are we sending to the rest of the world? Uh, I don't want us to be seen as soft on terror. We already have the reputation in, in some in some uh, circles. I don't want it to make it any worse. Phil, great talking as always. Yeah, thanks for calling, Brian. Take care. Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Assessment. Drop me a line beyond the news at CFRA.com. What do you think of letting Jack Letts into Canada? Born and raised in the UK, but he's got a Canadian passport. Do we let him in? Uh, Just after 8.30, Lauren Gunter will join us to talk about this ongoing fight between BC and Alberta over pipelines and wine. But up next... Justin Trudeau was asked about the Nazi comments today in the House of Commons. I'll bring you his tortured reaction when we come back. Beyond the news.
News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. We, we like to say people kind, not necessarily mankind, because oh, yeah. it's more inclusive. There we go, exactly. <laughs> yes, thank you. We can well, all learn from each other. <laughs> of course, you remembered that last week, right? You remembered that. And then, of course, he apologized and, and said, well, it was just a bad joke. You all know uh, that I don't necessarily have the best of track records on jokes. I uh, made a dumb joke a few days ago uh, that uh, seems to have gone a little viral uh, in the room on the people kind comment. Yeah, it wasn't a joke. It wasn't. He was not joking. These are the types of things that Justin Trudeau says all the time. I don't believe he was joking. I, you know, I don't think the room took it that way. I think that Justin Trudeau was being Justin Trudeau. He's glib because it's 2015 type comments. He has a track record of this. But what was really disturbing is, is just as this story was dying down last week, Jerry Butts, some people call him Justin Trudeau's brain, Butts for Brains, decides he's going to go on Twitter and attack critics. Piers Morgan. Center-left British pundit, former CNN host, wrote a column in the Daily Mail excoriating Trudeau. The Toronto Star had one of the most biting columns I read on this. The BBC covered this. The Guardian covered this. But to Jerry Butts, the principal secretary to the prime minister, his old college drinking buddy, if you were against him, you were with the Nazis. Now, people say, no, no, that's not what he said. He he was comparing InfoWars and the rebel to the alt-right Nazis. No, he lumped people that were criticizing them in with that. When Piers Morgan pointed out that he's not a Nazi, that it wasn't a joke, and that this was in poor form, Butts tweeted back at Piers Morgan and said, good company you're joining. So today, Peter Kent asked Trudeau about this in the House of Commons. Mr. Speaker, the Nazis killed six million Jews. People who laugh at the Prime Minister are not Nazis. Mr. Speaker, will the Prime Minister disassociate himself from his principal secretary's unacceptable language? Right. Honorable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, we, uh, as all of us do, take very seriously uh, the Holocaust and make sure we remind ourselves never again by uh, telling the story of the Holocaust and not relating uh, that to anything else that happened. Uh, we recognize that this is something of extreme uh, uh, difficulty and care that we not, must be taken, and uh, I have always ensured that we are respectful in our discourse, particularly around that subject. Respectful in our discourse, but my closest advisor and my bestie referred to critics of mine as Nazis. Trudeau was asked time and again to disavow the comments made by Gerald Butts. He refused to, and in the end, attacked Rebel and other media outlets. This is not what this is about. You all know that I had my problems with Rebel and we parted ways. But they were not the first 
to mock Justin Trudeau. They were not the last. But this is the kind of deflection. They are so hurt that the international media mocked their boy Justin that they're willing to call any and all critics Nazis. You know who you should compare to Nazis? No one. Unless they are Nazis. It was a bad comment. Butts should apologize. But I have to say this. The comment was made last Thursday. Thursday morning from Chicago. Outside of talk radio. And I will give kudos to Don Martin, whose power play is being replayed right now. And they're talking about this. But outside of Don Martin and power play, talk radio, and a small story in the Hill Times, where is this being covered? We have Canadian media outlets that will lead the news with something Donald Trump tweets about. We will have ongoing coverage of statements or the problems with this guy, Rob Porter, in Trump's office, who was let go after he was accused of domestic assault beating his wives, ex-wives. I'd never heard of Rob Porter before last week, but we have more coverage of that than the closest advisor and best friend of our prime minister calling Canadians and others that disagree with his boss Nazis. The media in this country is shameful. What are you worried about? Are you going to worry that Are you worried that Jerry Butts is going to walk up to you and say something mean at the next cocktail party? Are you worried that he's not going to invite you to the next cocktail party? Are you worried he's going to tip over your glass of Chardonnay? Grow up, people. Grow up and be willing to call out our own government for doing the same damn thing you bitch and whine about Donald Trump doing. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. on your side. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Seeing a friend post online that she got an early Valentine's Day present, a bouquet of flowers from her hobby. A lot of pressure this week, guys. All of a sudden, flowers that cost you 15 bucks are going to cost you 80 I'll just say this. You're looking for a deal, look to your grocery flyers. I, I was in a grocery store today, and they were advertising a dozen roses 25 bucks, five bucks more, you get a heart-shaped box of chocolate. Huh? 30 bucks and you're set. Sounds good to me, doesn't it? What do you think? You might want to buy a bottle of wine for your sweetheart as well. Maybe you want to do that. But it won't be BC wine if you live out in Alberta. There is a bizarre system going on, a bizarre fight going on between Alberta and British Columbia because the B.C. government 
has decided that they don't want to allow a federally approved pipeline carrying BC oil to the Vancouver coastline to go through. It's the twinning of an existing pipeline that's operated for more than 50 years with no problems, but that's okay. They are fear-mongering and claiming that it is death and destruction if this thing goes through. So the B.C. government is trying to block the Kinder Morgan pipeline. In retaliation, it started with one restaurant. Now it's the whole province. They are no longer buying B.C. wine through the wholesaler. It's private sale in Alberta. Private sale for beer, wine, and spirits. But the government's the wholesaler. So you still got to go through the government. They're blocking the sale of B.C. wine. So... There's a bit of a trade war going on. And in the middle of this is Justin Trudeau, who is be saying, well, we'll put it through. But he's being completely ineffectual. And in, at the same time, they've just announced they're doing away with the National Energy Board and bringing in tough new environmental policies for approving projects. It's so bad that Suncor said they're not even going to build in Canada anymore. Suncor has been in Canada. It's a Canadian company since 1919. They own what was Petro-Canada. And what's Trudeau doing? He's fiddling. He's fiddling while he and Jerry pretend that the oil sands are burning or something. Lauren Gunter is a longtime columnist out of Edmonton. He's been following this closely. And I want to bring him on now to find out um, what exactly is going down. It's tough to, to get all the details sometimes from afar. So... Lauren joins me on the line now. And Lauren, I, I got to ask you, are you missing your BC wine with all this this trade dispute going on? Uh, no, no, I'm not. But <laughs> I'm, I'm not buying BC wine, that's for sure. And that's interesting, too, because one of our best friends owns a winery in BC. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit of friction, for sure. Uh, uh, but it's... I, I don't disagree I, with the Premier and, and her call to... Uh, the Alberta Gaming and Liquor Commission, who has a monopoly on wholesaling of liquor in Alberta. I don't disagree with her call for them to stop bringing in BC wine. I spoke with our Kelowna station, AM 1150, or the morning host last week, Phil, uh, or I guess two weeks ago now, Phil Johnson. And uh, at that point, it wasn't a full-on Alberta liquor uh, ban. It was mm-hmm. one restaurant in Fort McMurray. Mm-hmm. And even Phil was saying, you know what? I kind of get it. So you know, Kelowna. I mean, that's wine country. Yeah, and and, and they were saying they kind of get what's going on. And the unfortunate thing is, a the people who are going to get smacked with this are the small vintners, right? There's not big companies that are going to take a hit on this. The most wineries in BC, even the big ones that you like, you mentioned Mission Hill. These, these aren't huge companies. And the second thing is that most of the wineries are in the interior, and in the interior they tend to vote for the pro-pipeline candidates. So, uh, unfortunately, the people who are getting hurt are the people who are most likely to be on, on Alberta's side among British Columbians. Uh, so it's tough, but I think our premier had to do something to wake the, uh, the, the uh, smug elites in the lower mainland up. And, well, and certainly, it's interesting, because we backed out, before we backed out of wine, we backed out of negotiations over buying electricity from B.C., and they need us to do that more than they need us to buy their wine, and yet the buying the wine or boycotting their wine 
created more of a stir in BC. So it was it was a good move. Before I get into how the Prime Minister's doing, uh, Lauren, let me ask you, speaking with Lauren Gunter, Edmonton Sun, post-media columnist, uh, Lauren, let me ask you, how bizarre is it that you've got two strains of the NDP fighting over a pipeline <laughs> and wine? Yeah, it's funny. It's a cousin civil war. That's absolutely true. And if I were Jason Kenney, the, the leader of the United Conservative Party in Alberta, I would keep saying as often as I can, you know, the Alberta NDP are telling the BC NDP to do this or do that or whatever, because I think it would be strategically wise for the Conservatives to remind voters again and again that that uh, this is two sides of the same coin. And and the other things kind of humorous in this is that deep down, I don't think Rachel Notley likes pipelines any more than John Horgan does. Uh, when she was uh, in opposition, she was opposed to uh, Keystone XL. She was opposed to Northern Gateway. She was kind of in support of Energy East, but I think deep down, really, um, they are like the federal liberals and the uh, New Democrat Green Coalition in in BC. They they all think that in some sort of fantasy world we can do without pipelines, uh, and that's what they would really like to do. But her political and economic, well, her political and fiscal health rely on getting at least uh, one pipeline to the coast in Canada. Could be Energy East, could be uh, could be Kinder Morgan, uh, more likely to be Kinder Morgan than Energy East, of course, uh, at this point. And, but and it's I, fun. It's just fun to watch. Now we've got a, a proposal being revived that is backed by First Nations Group, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm off the top of my head, I believe his name is Calvin Heelan. Am I saying it correctly? To, oh, I say it too, but I'm in print. I don't have to. Okay, well, it loud. <laughs> all right. So uh, I, I interviewed Calvin years ago, but he he's got a, a a First Nations backed business that wants to run a pipeline to get around the tanker ban from Alberta up into Alaska. Yep. And then you know get out there. So people are looking for alternatives to get around. Uh, what's going on here, but they shouldn't have to look for alternatives. Well, the federal and, government should yeah. be able to step in and say, no, this is happening. Yeah. Well, two things on that. First of all, uh, Premier Rachel Notley had a press conference today, an impromptu press conference at the Alberta legislature, and she said, I'm not going to take any more retaliatory action against the B.C. government because at the moment the federal government is talking to the B.C. government to see whether they can't get them to come, to go along. Now, frankly, I don't think that Ottawa's heart is in uh, Kinder Morgan. I, you know, uh, Gerald Butts, who is the principal secretary of the prime minister, used to be uh, one of Canada's leading professional environmentalists. Uh, there are so many environmentalists who who started Ontario's green energy program. Oh, don't don't talk to bus. me about it. Don't talk to me about you know, it. My bill, my yeah, bill, Lauren. So those same people are now in Ottawa, uh, trying to to match on the federal level what they the destruction they've done on the provincial level in Ontario and so their hearts not in it either so i'm not sure what the the, the Ottawa government is telling the BC government uh, in all of these negotiations it's clear BC doesn't have the power to stop a pipeline it really it is very clear um, but who knows whether Ottawa is laying down the law or not you know and now that they're behind closed doors and Alberta's not uh, stomping its feet any for a while, anyway. Uh, maybe they're saying, "Oh, 
can you believe how mad that Rachel Notley gets? Oh my goodness, it's just so hard to keep her in line. You know, there could be all sorts of, of uh, sneaky discussions going on, but uh, but it's it's interesting to see that uh, at least today, Alberta Premier Rachel Notley said that while Ottawa is trying to convince BC to to stop its obstructionism, so. While they're doing that, we will not take any further retaliatory action. And yeah. there are lots of things Alberta could do. I, you know, one of the big examples is BC supplies a fair amount of natural gas to the United States, mm-hmm. and it gets it there through pipelines that run across Alberta. No. Yeah, and we don't charge them any tolls for that. So you don't want our bitumen in pipelines going across BC? Yeah, we might change our minds about letting your natural gas come across Alberta in pipelines. So... There's, there are things to do, and, and I think Notley has played it. I'm not a fan of hers at all, but I think she's played it fairly smart so far. And, and she, I have to give her credit as well. I, I, you know, I think you're right. She's played it smart. But let me ask you about Gerald Butts, since you mentioned yep. him, uh, when he's not busy calling any critics of his boss Nazis. Yep. Uh, this is a guy who's on the record as saying, we don't need a different pipeline route. We need a different economy. Yeah. He said, we do not believe that there should be a carbon-based economy right. in Canada. Right. I mean, there's a, something that, that uh, I've tried to remind people again and again and again is that environmentalists are not against pipelines per se. They're against what's in the pipeline. And so if they can stop the pipeline, it's not that they, they'd rather see rail cars carrying the oil or bitumen. They just don't want any oil or bitumen. So they want to stop pipelines. They want to stop rail cars. They want to stop dirigibles. I mean, at one point, I remember two or three years ago, somebody suggested that that uh, we could heavy haul uh, bitumen to the to the coast or even across the oceans with dirigibles. Uh, they would be against that, too. It's the <laughs> bitumen and the oil that they're opposed to. It's not the method by which you get In fact, you know, I'm sure if you, if you sat down with most environmentalists and said, look, you have to have one method for getting oil to market. There's nothing you can do about it. What wouldn't you take? Well, pipelines would be the one because it's, you know, by volume, they have the fewest accidents and leaks. Um, so that, that I'm sure they would be okay with. But they just don't want any oil and gas development. So, uh, yeah, that's you're exactly right. That Butts isn't isn't opposed to Kinder Morgan, but in favor of Energy East. He's opposed to pipelines and to rail car. Uh, He's opposed to oil. Just opposed to oil in general. Let Let me ask you this, uh, Lauren. Speaking with Lauren Gunter, uh, Sun Media col- or Sun Edmonton Sun Post Media columnist. I'll get the name of the company right one day. Uh, <laughs> The fact that we've got a prime minister that is going around the world talking about free trade deals and we still don't have free trade inside Canada, which is the reason, one of the major reasons for confederation in 1867. Yep, absolutely. This goes to the beer case that you and I have talked about with uh, the, the guy out in New Brunswick. This is core to that, and, and we can't have free trade inside our own country. Well, and, and you know, to, to, to use an illustration of how difficult it is to get free trade in Canada, we do have free trade among the three western provinces, and Manitoba will join uh, as the fourth province later this year, early next year. I can't remember. I've forgotten now the exact date, but Manitoba's coming in at some point in the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, and despite that, 
Alberta still has a uh, preferential subsidy program for its craft beer breweries uh, that violates the that agreement. And now here's Alberta saying to BC, oh, you're violating this Western trade partnership when Alberta's doing it itself. There, there shouldn't be a Western trade partnership. Shouldn't have to be a separate one. No, there shouldn't be. But there is. Section, is it section 120 no or 121 pro- of the Constitution? Yeah. There are no two provinces, including Ontario and Quebec, no two provinces that do more trade with one another than Alberta and BC. I mean, we're the, the closest friends, the, the best trading partners, the nearest allies, even when we have a conservative and NDP government, uh, one and the other. Uh, but now it's funny because we have our biggest trade war when we have, for the very first time ever, two <laughs> NDP governments. It is funny on that. I, I hope that they solve this soon and you get back to drinking BC wine because it, <laughs> we don't get a lot of it here due to silly trade laws. Right. Um, but when I have it, Lauren, it's fantastic. It is. you know, And BC has become now one of the top three uh, wine tourism destinations in the world. Really? Yep. Tuscany, the south of France, and the Okanagan Valley. Wow. So yeah. even bigger than Napa. Well, Apparently. It is, I, I, it, it's a beautiful area. I, I, I can understand why. Lauren, great talking as always. You bet. You can read Lauren Gunter in the Sun Papers. You can find him online and, uh, and do follow him on the Twitter machine as well. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Drop me a line on what you think of this fight. Beyond the News at CFRA.com. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Canada definitely had my back 100% and I felt that. It, It was definitely motivating and gave me a little extra boost and energy to do my very best. Mark McMorris. What a story that guy has. He is the man that won the bronze medal in snowboarding on the weekend. His teammate, Max Parrott, Max Parrott or Max Perot? I don't know how he's pronouncing his name, but it's spelled Parrott. He won silver. The Canadians were dominating until this little American teenager snuck through and took gold. But hey, we took silver and bronze. But what is amazing about Mark McMorris is that he would... He was racked up. He was smashed to pieces a year ago. He's snowboarding in the B.C. backcountry, hits a tree. He had a ruptured spleen, broken ribs, <laughs> fractured arms. He's lucky to be alive. And there he is talking about how Canada had his back. So congratulations to Mark McMorris. That is fantastic. Uh, we've got a number of medals now. We'll get uh, a medal count update in a moment. But... Uh, I wasn't here after the Super Bowl last week, and, you know, before the Super Bowl happened, Elsie made a prediction, and it looks like looks like you were pretty accurate on this one, on, on who would win the Super Bowl, Stephen Ellsworth. Yeah, I got the team right this time. But you also predicted that it would go down to the wire, which it almost did. Yeah, I said uh, Tom Brady would have at least one chance in the final two minutes to win the football game. He actually had two, and the Eagles were able to stop him both times, and that was the difference in that game. 
Wasn't it the, the the first sack of the game against Brady pretty much happened in those last two minutes as well? Uh, yeah, well, they actually stripped him of the ball, which is huge, and they recovered it. Yeah, no, it, um, I, I tell you, I was not feeling great. I did not watch the whole thing. It was um, it was a dramatic finish, though. It, you know, often Super Bowls have been called Super Bores because they don't live up to the hype. This one, yeah. this one did. It lived up to the hype. Are you getting into the Olympics yet? Uh, getting there. Yeah, not really. You're just waiting for hockey, aren't you? That's pretty much your only sport. Yeah, pretty much. Hockey is my forte. Okay, then let me ask you this. How do you feel? Because the whole country will watch a gold medal game if we're in it, and the World Juniors proves that it doesn't have to be all top NHLers. But how do you feel about a bunch of former NHLers, retired guys, people in the KHL League out of Europe representing Canada at the Olympics? Well, it's going to be interesting to see how they stack up against the rest, especially against the Olympic athletes of Russia, because we can't call them the Russians. Uh, what's also interesting is a couple of storylines. Oh, Erasmus Dahlin, who is the top-rated prospect in the upcoming draft, he's going to be playing for the Swedes. Okay. And uh, you also have Ilya Kovlachuk, who in the past couple of off-seasons, you know, the talk is, is he going to come back to the NHL? And because he had ties to the Devils, he opted to stay in Russia, I guess. But... Uh, he no longer has ties when he turns 35, which is on April 15th. So now the question becomes, with no ties, does he make it back to the NHL? But and it, the good does he still got it? The and uh, I think the Olympics are going to be a pretty big test for him. The good part for Canada, though, is that, well, we don't have our NHLers in there. Neither do any of the other countries. So we're all kind of on a level playing, f- uh, playing field that way. There's no tilted ice here. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back... Matt Scoff from the Ottawa Police Association will join us. You have heard about this study out today saying that police are not being proactive on the streets anymore. It sounds an awful lot like what Matt Scoff has been saying. We'll check in with him next. on your side. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Things like allegations of excessive force, uh, racial profiling, um, targeting certain areas or certain types of individuals. There's disciplinary panels, human rights tribunals, uh, the court of public opinion, mediated attention, public scrutiny, the way people would interpret uh, YouTube videos of certain police events. That is the voice of Carleton University doctoral researcher and Ottawa police officer uh, Greg uh, Brown, speaking with CFRA's News and Views with Rob Snow earlier today about why police are not doing proactive policing. There, it's been described to me before as the FIDO approach to policing. What's FIDO? F it. Drive on. Matt Goff is with the Ottawa Police Association. He's the president. He joins me now, Matt. You and I have talked about this before, that police officers, I think it was just about two weeks ago we were discussing this again, 
that police officers increasingly don't want to get out of their vehicles, talk to people, engage with people. They'll answer a call if they get it, but they're not going to go out of their way to to try and figure out what's going on in a neighborhood because they're too worried about blowback. Well, Greg's uh, appropriately listed all the reasons. Uh, I mean, legislation, our new regulated interaction legislation, uh, staffing is another compounding issue in Ottawa, lack of staffing, lack of a proactive unit. But when you have the Human Rights Commissioner alleging uh, inaccurately that racial profiling is occurring in Ottawa and interest groups jumping on that, uh, exacerbating uh, claims against our officers, uh, increasing investigations or allegations against our officers, it's a very frustrating and paralyzing environment to work in. So how does this, you know, we're, we're dealing with 16 shootings now. I, I, I want to stress that these are not 16 people shot. We've got our fifth homicide of the year. We've got 16 different incidents where guns have been shot. And, and I know some people want to downplay the fact that in, in not all incidents was a person shot. But, hey, in, in the one off on uh, Claremont, I believe it was, it went through people's windows, three different homes. One was the target. Three different homes got hit. I'd be terrified if that was my house. So how does that this change in attitude play into what we're seeing on the streets? Well, I think all of us agree that none of us are looking to wait for uh, an innocent bystander to be hurt here. I mean, that's always the, the problem or the threat, regardless of uh, the intent behind trying to target somebody. I mean, at any time when you're firing, uh, using a firearm, I should say, I, I, and there's always a risk that somebody uh, innocent is going to get hurt here. So, I mean, that's obviously not uh, any intent or in any way something that an officer is looking looking to do or hoping that will occur. Obviously not. Uh, again, Brian, I've mentioned this before. We're in a political landscape where our budget has been uh, limited, capped, so to speak. Uh, the chief has presented budgets that are insufficient. The police services board chair has agreed to them. Uh, they followed the police, the mayor's uh, edict of 2%. It's been insufficient. It's shrunk our service. We don't have the resources to be proactive. Adding and compounding to the issue is the regulated interactions, which has paralyzed and crippled our ability to uh, deal with the public. Uh, it's made it impossible to navigate. It's made it a, an incredibly negative experience interacting with the public. And uh, the lack of interactions, uh, the lack of staffing, you're seeing an increase in shootings, and uh, I'm confident and unfortunately predicting that we're going to be seeing a dramatic increase in violent crimes in the city of Ottawa in 2017 versus 2016 as this discussion around uh, carding or street checking occurs. It is very clear in the literature. This is not a surprise, I think, to any of your listeners. Uh, the inability of police to interact with the public is going to see an increase in crimes, an increase in antisocial behavior. Uh, there's many studies around it. Either you look at just from the simple uh, full, full, um, sociological experience around the Hawthorne effect, where uh, you know anybody who's being supervised or looked at will change their attitudes or behaviors. Uh, this is no different in policing. It's a very a very simple concept, really, is that when there is an authority sort of presence around, when there uh, is accountability. To occur when you are acting or acting inappropriately, that your behaviors change. And with a in, in, with a, a government that has legislated uh, basically sanctionings for officers for interacting with the public, 
and creating yep. an environment where officers can interact with the public, or if they do in a certain way, they will be charged under uh, labor law or police services act. So just okay, but, but administrative law. I, and I want to get to that: the the different tribunals, charges, everything they can face. I know that you and Chief Bordalo are at odds. I know that you and the uh, chair of the police services board are at odds. But most of the things that you've laid out have nothing to do with anything at municipal level. It is mostly provincial with maybe a little bit of federal thrown in. Well, and actually, if I could uh, clarify there, uh, Chief Bordel and I have the same opinion when it comes to the frustrations around regulated interactions and street checks. So I will will clarify that. When it comes to our uh, chair of our police services board and our mayor, uh, they're heavily linked to the Liberal Party. So it's not simply a provincial issue when uh, the chair of our police service board is also the chair of the provincial police services board. And our mayor is very active in AMO, the Ontario Association of Municipalities of Ontario. Uh, their influence in, uh, in provincial politics is substantial, uh, as well as, and from top down as well, too. The, the provincial politics are incredibly influential in our municipal politics. So it's not, it's not that separate at all, actually. It's quite interlinked. And actually, I would say, again, I'd like to clarify for your listeners, I don't believe uh, the chief's uh, position is politically uh, motivated. I mean, there are definitely disagreements between him and I in our uh, positions on uh, around staffing, what's appropriate staffing, et cetera. But I mean, that's he's the chief of police. He's mm-hmm. appointed to that position. I don't have to agree with it. But uh, politics does enter in this at the police services board level as well as at the municipal level. Let's make that very clear. So right now, uh, between what Greg Brown found in his research and what you, I mean, does it essentially back up what you're saying and and cast a big shining spotlight on how these political decisions are impacting on the street policing? Without a doubt, with absolute certainty, uh, Greg's, uh, his, uh, his study, his research is completely accurate with not only my opinion and my experience, with also the dialogues that I, the conversations that I have with our members and uh, what they provide me as feedback uh, to Greg's results, which I know go across the country, so it transcends just Ottawa's experience, are uh, exactly in line with the experience in Ottawa and with what our officers' uh, frustrations are as well. All right. Matt, uh, thanks for the time tonight. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. Matt Scoff is president of the Ottawa Police Association. Uh, you've got thoughts on this? Well, you can drop me a line. You can call in moments from now as well at 613-521-TALK, 521-8255. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. With Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. We have little to no faith in the justice system, and we're here to talk about that and figure out ways to address that. So that this is the beginning, and I hope that something comes of it. We're here to work on this. We're here to ask people to work with us. Jade Tutusis, the sister of Colton Bushy, 22-year-old man that died when he was shot and killed by Gerald Stanley on a Saskatchewan farm in August of 2016. 
Nobody disputes that Gerald Stanley shot and killed Colton Bushy, but Stanley was acquitted on charges of second-degree murder last week. I think there's an awful lot of mistakes that were made, including filing charges of second-degree murder instead of manslaughter. Easier to prove. Easier to prove manslaughter. But as a law professor from that region who followed the case closely pointed out, the arguments of the Crown prosecutor himself may have led the jury to not even consider manslaughter because he took them down a path of murder or bust. There was enough reasonable doubt that he could not be convicted. Now there are calls for wholesale changes to our justice system in a case that has been politically charged and race-driven from the beginning. Do you have thoughts on this? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility or 1-800-580-CFRA. Maybe you've got comments to make on this FIDO policing. F it, drive on. Matt Scoff's been talking about it. Now we've got a researcher from Carleton University, a doctoral researcher, saying he analyzed data from across the country, and that's happening. And it does not bode well for our safety. 521-TALK, 521-8255. Or maybe you've got thoughts on the Nazi comments from... Jerry Butts, the close advisor to the PM, that we've got media mocking that the opposition would dare raise this. Most of them won't report on what Butts says, but these are the people that obsess over every tweet from Trump or one of his lackeys. But they won't comment on what the the second most powerful man in Canada is doing? Unreal. Connor, you're on Beyond the News. Hi there. Um, listening to you, I have comments on every single one of those stories, but I'll, I'll keep it to the Colton Bushi case. Okay. First of all, I think it's very irritating the way Trudeau says what he said and then pretends to, oh, but I'm not going to give any specifics on this case. It's yeah, very he, clear. He already made it clear it was about that case. Yeah, well, I mean, when he says, he said following, I believe, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to uh, comment further but anyway, what I haven't heard, I'm, I'm speaking from a, a gun safety point of view, and I have been trained in gun safety, and um, the, the person who was found not guilty, he was too. He had a license to carry his gun, and I, I haven't heard anybody say this, but when you have a firearm in your possession, you are 100% responsible for what happens with that firearm while it's in your possession. If there's an accidental discharge, it does happen. People's fingers accidentally slip and pull the triggers that's happened too and people have died mm-hmm. did this man deliberately put the gun to the back of bushy's head and pull the trigger no that's why he's not a murderer in my mind but that doesn't make him not responsible for the gunshot he had his gun pointed at the back of that man's head whether it was on purpose or by accident i'm sure it was by accident but it happened and the gun went off and that man is dead which is why i think it should have been manslaughter but you, the um, you listen to the activists who, before the verdict even came down, said, we can't even accept manslaughter is a verdict. It's got to be second-degree murder or nothing. I think there was political pressure on the prosecutors to file charges that they didn't have the evidence for. And hmm. as a result, people are outraged. Well, and they're blaming it on racism. It's not racism. 
It's bad tactics by the Crown that led to this, in my view, and horrible witnesses for the Crown, people that admitted to lying, stealing, and being drunk on as many as 30 shots of booze. I agree completely, but I, and you're, you're the first person on the news that I've heard say he should be found or at least charged with manslaughter. To me, there's no question that he's guilty of manslaughter. I don't think racism has anything to do with it, and I do believe it's sad that the way this case has gone down, it almost sounds like a, a case from the 1950s of an all-white jury. Uh, really yeah, and I, I, clearly, I, I, but, I don't go down that road, Connor, because that implies that the jury was racist. Yeah, and I, I'm trying. I, I don't believe it was. I don't believe race factored into it. And this this man, you know, I feel sorry for him because those those young people on his farm were clearly up to no good. One of them had a gun in in his own car, and I mean, he could so easily have said, "Oh, I saw the gun. I thought he was going for it." Like, yeah. But I, I do think he's guilty of manslaughter, and I don't blame the Aboriginal people and other people for being angry that he's let off scot free. All right, thanks for the call, Connor. Thanks. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. If you've been waiting to call at night, it's been more than a week. Now's your chance. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Mr. Speaker, the Nazis killed six million Jews. People who laugh at the Prime Minister are not Nazis. Mr. Speaker, will the Prime Minister disassociate himself from his principal secretary's unacceptable language? Uh, Well, we know the answer to that. No, no, he won't. He's got Jerry's back. He'd rather attack other people. Um throw around the word Nazi, then actually admit Jerry goofed. But Jerry did goof up. The story was going away. People had had their fun mocking Justin and his people-kind comment, like the people-kind. And then he had to go and do this. Just absolutely mind-boggling, ill-advised, rude, sick. You don't compare people to Nazis except Nazis. I'm sorry, but Piers Morgan, not a Nazi. Toronto Star, not a Nazi. 521-TALK, 521-8255. I, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm being taken a task on Twitter. I mentioned that I happened to see a grocery store flyer with a great deal for flowers for Valentine's, so you're not spending 80 bucks. And Blue Thistle Florist, you can find her on Twitter, local Ottawa florist. She says, hey, at Brian Lilly. Grocery store flowers are great, but the Ottawa area is blessed with many hardworking small business owners with very talented florists on staff who would love to make something unique for Ottawa and area shoppers for Valentine's Day. Maybe maybe that's it. You go to a, a florist who will actually make something unique and not just buy a dozen overpriced red roses on Valentine's Day. Maybe. Maybe that's what you do. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility or 1-800-580-CFRA. John, you're on Beyond the News. Good evening. Evening, John. And I, as I was listening to the news, 
I was sitting here thinking that over the years, everyone doesn't necessarily have to be a gun owner in order to know, because of thankfully programs like CSI, et cetera, they do a lot of teaching and give us a lot of hints. So in regards to the shooting, mm-hmm. and, and in the handgun in particular, uh, for years I used to think that the, the expression hair trigger meant its, its um, mechanical uh, uh, parts. But no, it was the fact that somebody back then used to shave parts of the trigger in order to make it quicker action and and get it down to the point where it's just balanced and if you hit it it would go off yeah that, and, and that that's not what happened here yeah I, I yeah I go along with that part but what I'm interested in is in the fact that they claimed that the gun went off accidentally so what they argued and both the crown and defense had witnesses on this and you know Bill Graveland from Canadian press sat in court and tweeted this stuff out with full quotes yep. from both sides. He basically documented the case, and you can go online. And, and, and it's almost like reading a court transcript in real time. Yeah, absolutely. And they discussed what this hang fire theory, and that is that it was bad ammunition. This was a Russian Cold War pistol. The ammunition was from, it was bulk surplus ammunition from 1953. Oh that he kept in a shed, and it's uh, apparently one of the, the rounds had a bulge in it. And so they think th- the theory put forward was that all these factors came together. It looked like the gun was empty. It wasn't. Well, and, your previous and, caller had said it best, that when you're a gun owner, you're responsible for everything that goes along with it. And had I been, or if I was, I'd be the person to double and triple check you know, uh, just uh, okay, to make but sure. put, put yourself in that man's situation. I can't. I can't. Put, uh, you, you know, you 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 think I, your wife might be under the truck that is attempting true. to yes. back up. Yes, yes. You've there, got. There are a lot of. Uh, all, all of this is happening at lightning speed. That's right. And none that's, of us are prepared for that. Yeah, I, I can sympathize. You know, with both sides, but I I was just looking at the technical aspect and and thinking personally. I wonder if they had a second opinion, but now that you tell me yeah. all of the other stuff, uh, the, each side had their own absolutely. court expert, and yeah. both said it, yeah. it's possible. And in a criminal trial, it's up to the crown to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not up to the defense to prove that the yeah. person charged is innocent. Well, I, I was just trying to look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. All right. So thanks for thanks for the call, John. Okay. All right. Let's go to uh, Gloria. Gloria, you're on Beyond the News. Go. Hello, Brian. Hello. Back from your holiday. Hope you had a good one. Oh, uh, not as restful as as I'd like, but yeah. Thank you. <laughs> good stuff. Okay. You know, no, I just feel our police force here in Ottawa, they're being hampered from doing their jobs of, of protecting us uh, citizens here in, in Ottawa because they're not doing checks because of, uh, unless they, they have a, a complaint phoned in. And it's bec- to me, it's because of the, they're concerned about the race card or the color card being used against them, you know, like racial profiling, whether it's true or not. The thing is this, if a certain large section of the population is out at night, it has nothing to do with race and nothing to do with color, 
when they are stopped and questioned. Uh, and question. then, now, the police, to me, have a right to do police checks in order to keep us all safe, but this is not happening. And we aren't being really protected that well anymore. And I, I blame a lot of it uh, also on the court system. It's, it, they're letting us down a, a great deal. I mean, how many times have the same people been charged with, for example, drug trafficking, and they're known to the police? Uh, I mean, they've got a record as long as your arm, but immediately they're back on the streets selling drugs again, and they're laughing behind uh, Bordelow's back. Chief, I mean, Chief Bordelow was discussing this with me at the news conference, uh, what, two weeks ago? Is that right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. N- he, no, he, he said that, uh, I think... Seven of the people that they arrested in the the the, the illegal gun sweep mm-hmm. were back on the streets right away. Well, this is it. It's like a revolving door. I mean, they they walk in the front and 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 the and the the, the judges are holding the door open for open for them at the back so they can go out and and do the same thing again. Why not bring back the curfew? Because right now the gangs are are controlling the streets. I mean, this hug a thug that that Bordelow was doing hasn't worked. He, this, this has been going on for two years, and there hasn't. He can't give one example when he's interviewed that that the, there has been any success rate. Either they're not doing it; he's not doing it right, or the the the, the thing was a failure. Uh, from okay, the what start. do you mean his hug a thug? Okay, he has this thing where these he, they're 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 catching the young the 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 young uh, people first. And they're and they're and they're trying to re, uh, retrain them and get them into something that's that's they're more involved in the community, more involved. I don't know, be it sports or whatever it is they're uh, doing. Look, Gloria, I believe that that can work in conjunction with tough policing. But uh, what yes. what what else has changed over the last two years? And I put this to the mayor and the 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 chief mm-hmm. at that last news conference. I asked, what is the correlation between the uh, increase in very lucrative drugs like fentanyl in shooting. And they said, absolutely, it's there. Absolutely, it's there. Fentanyl is, uh, it's not new. The opioid crisis is not new, but it's certainly grown over the last two years. And people are getting into this. It, It used to be, and I've talked about it, but I've been told, no, that's not the case anymore. Always willing to hear more information that mm-hmm. there were essentially there were different uh, ethnic groups running street gangs. Now it is a free for all out there. Yeah, everybody wants a piece of this, and mm-hmm. all kinds of folks are getting involved because it's lo- very very lucrative, and, and they're shooting each other over it. Exactly. So they- that 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 mm-hmm. is a a new. Uh, a, a new problem that not only Ottawa police but all police forces have to deal with, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not. So I don't think you can just say it's uh, Chuck's policies or Jim's policies because they didn't bring the fentanyl in. No, they didn't. But the thing is, and bring back at least bring back a curfew. On, on this, because, I mean, that made a big difference. I mean, crime has never been worse than it is now. And there's, there's, there's nothing to stop it when, the, when these, these dealers are to- right back on the street again. And they, they have no respect, actually, for the police. They're, now there's, there's gun shootings in the daytime, in the afternoon. It doesn't matter. It, it's, not, it's not just delegated to nighttime. It's, it's any time of the day or night. And they're, they're, they're bolder than ever. 
If you bring yep. back at least a curfew, you have something to start with. Well, yeah, I, I don't think curfews are legal or enforceable in Canada. They um, were. They but, were at one time. Well, not in my lifetime. I'll tell you that. Uh, thanks for the call, Gloria. Got to go to uh, Maddie calling in uh, about Colton Bushy. Maddie, you're on Beyond the News. Yeah, hi, Brian. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, this, this issue with uh, Colton just really burns me because, you know what, they're screaming it's racism, they're screaming this, that, and the other. They're holding the farmer responsible, actually the mother, the uncle, and the people, uh, the parents of the other kids in the car. If I was an elder, I'd bring them all in, and I'd tell them, Somebody failed at teaching these kids respect, how to drink responsibly. And if they're bored, we don't go around causing bad blood between us and anyone. The, That's what I, I tell them. I believe, and I don't know all the details in this case, but I read a fair bit about it over the weekend. I believe one of the stories said that the the kids were all drinking at the home of one of their grandmothers. Um, I know that they were adults. They weren't young kids. They, I believe they were all legal drinking age. They were early 20s sort of thing. Yeah, but then Colton Bushy was 22. But y- your grandson is at your house drinking 20, 30 shots of booze. Maybe you want to step in. I mean, they expect that, us as white people to do that, pull the keys, you know? And then they're getting yeah, I mean, in a uh, uh, an SUV the and driving. Did, yeah, the farmer did not go down there and cause any problems to them. They went over and caused the problems to that farmer. And he will never have his life back. No. Never. Uh, there, no, are, like, there, there are uh, GoFundMe campaigns for both of them, both um, either side of $100,000. But money doesn't solve everything. No, because I know somebody that was involved in um, a murder case. They accused him of killing his wife. The man did not touch this woman. And he got acquitted in a whole nine yards. And he says, I walk around town and I never know who's going to stab me in the back because, well, I heard you killed her. I don't care if you're white man, black man, red man, whatever. This man will never, and he must be closing his eyes at night going, what happened? Like if I was reaching into a car and I had a gun in my left hand, it would be natural for me to grab the door and pull myself in farther so I can get the key out, right? Not thinking what's in my hand. I've got to get the key out of here. I don't know what he's done and what damage he's done to my family. As you said, his mind must have been racing. Right. And these people have the balls to turn around and say, well, it's his fault? Excuse me? Pick up your responsibility, honey. Thanks for the call. Somewhere. All right, bye-bye. All right, we'll take a quick break. Back with more of your calls at 521-TALK, 521-8255. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at Facebook.com slash 580CFRA. Irish Tom, you're on Beyond the News. Hello, Brian. Hello, sir. 
Because a jihad, jihad Jack is a jihad Jack. Jihadi Jack. Jihadi Jack. If he's not a Canadian, how the hell is he holding a passport, a Canadian passport? Because his father is from Canada, and he holds dual citizenship, so he got a Canadian passport. And he never lived in Canada? Not as far as I can tell. Oh, hey, what's the matter with this country? I, I, I said earlier I could get a, a British passport. I could walk over to the consulate on Elgin and... And get one because of where my parents were born. I don't believe in that dual, uh, dual passport business. That should be stopped. I got a Canadian passport. I don't have an Irish one. I don't want it. I've, uh, you change over to Canadian, that's it. That's the passport. You swear to this country, and that's it. You don't hold two. What the hell is going on here? I think it's a bit baffy, and what's really disgusting is that he only wants to come here because he thinks we're lighter on returning oh, well, uh, yeah, jihadis. Anybody can come here if you commit crimes. You could be a murderer or anything. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I want to tell you something here. Uh, 149 years ago, February 11th, yesterday, mm-hmm. the only political assassination in Canada, Thomas Darcy McGee, was shot on Spark Street. Yep. That was 149 years ago, and there's not a word said about it. Now, we, we do not remember our history. Uh, my, it's the only political uh, assassination in Canada. And he was a great friend. Him and MacDonald were uh, drinking buddies. <laughs> well, in Great Fathers of Confederation, without them, no Canada. That's Thanks right. for the call, Tom. Okay, thank you. All right, last word goes to Guy, the Capital Voice. Guy. Hi, good evening, Brian. Welcome back. All right, got to be quick tonight, because apparently we're up against a stricter clock tonight with Stephen. Okay, Social Deconstruction by Gerald Butts. I feel that we're in a very, very troubled time in Canada. With all that's happening on the policing side, with Matt Scoff said it perfectly tonight, that the politicization of the police and the judicial system, I think is an overarching theme in the social deconstruction that I'm speaking about. Uh, Butts' comments were not only reprehensible, as Lowell said this morning, but I'm so glad that Peter Kent brought him up officially for the Hansard in the House of Commons, and I hope he continues to do so, because Gerald Butts is exactly what he calls us, as far as I'm concerned. The whole world is upside down right now, Brian. We can't get a barrel of oil off our shores. We can't refine a barrel of oil east of Montreal. And we've got a bunch of social deconstructionists that don't want a carbon-based economy, and it represents 30% of our GDP. So where does that leave Canada? What I'm seeing on social media right now, Brian, and the vitriol that I'm seeing in various groups and these silos that Facebook itself has created is very troublesome because we can't talk anymore. All we are is ideologues on each side of a pendulum that is swinging too far one side to the other, and nobody's listening to anybody else on the other side. And that clock is Canada, and that clock in Justin's post-national Canada, which we never got an explanation on Canada Day when he said a post-national Canada. If this is a post-national Canada, Brian, I had my aha moment today. Because I went to Apple Tree Medical Center, and there wasn't a doctor because they can't afford to bring doctors in anymore because the province isn't paying for them. Unreal. I see, I see a parking lot full of cars at the other side where the Max Milk used to be, and there's 70 people inside Cannabis Culture 
on baseline at Green Bank waiting to pick up pot from an illegal store, and there's a cop car filling up gas at the Exo next door. It's Welcome to Post-National Canada. Social Deconstruction by Gerald Butler. Thanks for the call, Guy. We got to wrap it there. Back at it again tomorrow. Thanks for participating. Thanks for listening. As always, remember, I'm on your side. But the train keeps on rolling.